Good morning. Good to see you this Sunday morning, and I uh, wanted to thank you for your kind of putting up with the little covert op we were running on my mom. Uh, I couldn't announce that we were going to be gone uh, because there was a surprise party for her on uh, last Saturday, and uh, all of her kids, my older sister is now in heaven with my dad, but her two kids were there, all of her grandkids were there, all of her great-grandkids were there to celebrate her 80th birthday, and she was beyond surprised. She was totally shocked, and it was part of, because of the little off that we ran, and it was very difficult, to be honest, on Friday to call her when it was actually her birthday and apologize for not being there when we were only 10 miles away. So it was a great surprise, and uh, thank you for putting up with that. I know Mike was blessed to be here, and I know you were blessed by him. So also, if you'd like to read ahead this Wednesday, we're now in 2 Samuel, and we'll be looking at chapter 2 this week. So 2 Samuel 2, if you'd like to read ahead. Are you ready to rumble this morning? All right, here we go. Open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Chapter 21 will be our text. The opening first 14 or 16 verses, rather, will be our reading. Now, in our last two visits to the book of Acts, our two messages shared the same title. And that was simply a strong finish. And we noted that for us, it covered a kind of a double meaning. One, we were going to examine the fact that Paul wanted to finish his race strong. And we also paired that with the fact that Individually, whether that is through death or corporately through the rapture, I vote for the latter. That someday we're all going to finish our races as well. And therefore we need to have the same desire and that is to finish strong. Now, in order to have that desire, we must have the conviction to do so. And that is going to be our subject this morning. And it's okay to be convicted in church. That was kind of strong. I'm surprised and grateful for that. Now, in Acts 20, 24, Paul said this, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with what? Joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he clarifies what his ministry is, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, the none of these things that moved Paul was the attacks and trials he was experiencing from the plotting of his beloved countrymen, his fellow Jews. They persecuted the former Pharisee for his faith in Christ, and in their minds, Paul shared the same blasphemy that caused Jesus to be put on the cross. It wasn't his claim to be Messiah, it was his claim to be the Son of God, thus making himself equal to God, that landed him on the cross, and also landed Paul in the crosshairs of their plottings, because he believed the same. Yet, Paul said, none of these things changed my course. None of these things move me off the directives and directions that God has given to me. As he continued to teach the gospel of the grace of God to both Jew and Gentile in every city, no matter what it brought his way. And we're going to see further proof this morning in our verses that he did not count his life dear to himself. And the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus was his joy and it was his primary pursuit in life just as it should be ours. Now, we're going to need to back up a couple of verses to capture the context of what's happening in our opening verses this morning. 
from the final farewell exchange of Paul and the Ephesian elders who he had ministered to and with for some three years. Now, after he had given them some exhortations, including it is more blessed to give than receive, as he quoted Jesus, a non-recorded portion of the statements of Christ, where he said in Acts 20, 36 to 38, after he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Now, we're going to see this wonderful cultural practice uh, revisited again or repeated in that it was customary in the day to escort someone to their point of departure. And then there would be final parting words exchanged. And within those he gave to the Ephesian elders included the fact that he would never see them, at least in this life, again to his own understanding based on the calling of God in his life. And we made the case that last words are always important words, and thus we need to uh, study them carefully. And there will be some final exchanges in our verses this morning as well. Now, our title is actually going to come from one statement in one verse of our text for today, and it's going to require some setup in order to understand and reveal it. Now, I want to tell you in advance, this morning's message is going to be convicting. You already said that's okay. Amen? It's going to be convicting for all of us, including the one delivering the message. But here's why this is important. We will never be convinced of anything that we don't have convictions for or from. We have to have the convictions necessary to step in to what God is calling us to do. Now, the statement I'm referring to from which we'll derive our title is uh, in Acts 21.6, where we're told of this parting scene, when we had taken our leave for one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. Now, not trying to force anything into the text, but at face value, What we can record from this scene is that some press forward into sacrificial ministry and the risk of persecution, while others went home. Now, not trying to imply they went home and did nothing, but the best way to introduce our title is from something I experienced this past week. It was very exciting, and I was at one of my grandson's water polo games. You know, my grandson, who's a freshman, who's playing varsity water polo, that one? (laughs) Did I happen to mention that before? May have. Now, one of his games this week was particularly exciting. It was just amazing. His team scored, then the opponent scored. His team scored, then the opponent scored. Then the opponent scored. Then the opponent scored. His team scored. And with a little over a minute left in the half, it was five to two. And in that minute, the halftime score was five to four, the opposing team. Now, after the half, within the first minute, it was five to five. Then my grandson's team went ahead six to five. Then it was six to six. Then it was seven to seven. And then it was eight to eight. And then it was nine to eight with a minute left. And listen, the place was going crazy. The crowd was loud and raucous. The game was extremely exciting. And when Tanner's team pulled ahead nine to eight, the cheers of defense, defense were almost deafening. For someone who's almost deaf, that lets you know that it's very, very loud. 
And when the final buzzer sounded and the defense had prevailed and my son's grandson's team was victorious, the place absolutely exploded with cheers, shouts, and applause. In other words, everyone shared in the moment of victory. Now, the names of the players were not assigned the victory. The name of the school was. But in reality, though all who were present shared in the moment, no one experienced the victory like those who were in the pool. The ones in the stands enjoyed the excitement. The school received credit for the win. And the fact is, some were used to accomplish the victory directly while others watched from the stands. And it reminded me, that's how life is. And that's how church life is. And the fact is, there are two kinds of people in life and two groups which make up our title. And that is, and here's our title, participants and spectators. Participants and spectators. Now, as Paul and company completed the final leg of his third missionary journey, some got on the ship, some went home. And again, not trying to imply anything about those who went home. It's just the facts that are presented to us. Now, Here's what I want to take note of this morning before we begin. The church is filled with people who share the same victory that Christ accomplished on the cross. Some participate in advancing the kingdom of God for his glory. Others cheer them on. Both groups are headed for heaven. Both groups love Jesus. But the participants have some have actually two things that puts them in a different category, so to speak, from the spectators, even though all share in the same victory. And those two things are these. They are battle scars and rewards. Now listen, nobody is saved by what they do for God. Amen? Nobody's saved by what they do for God, but everyone is rewarded according to what they do for God. Now, in 2 John 1.8, the beloved says, look to yourselves, that we do not lose the things that we what? Work for. Why? But that we may receive a full reward. And Revelation twenty two, twelve to thirteen, Jesus said, say Jesus said, and behold I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Then he states his credentials of being the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now As we said, as we introduced our title, while the parents, grandparents, classmates, and coaches all shared in the victory of the game, none experienced the victory like those who were in the pool. The spectators didn't get the letterman's jackets. The participants, well, did I mention that my grandson lettered as a freshman? I don't know if I brought that up or not, but just slightly proud of him. He's an awesome young man. Now, my hope today is that we can all be encouraged to be participants. And sometimes we participate by making sure others get to the place where the ministry is going to take place. And sometimes we get on the boat ourselves. But we all need to increase our participation in the furthering of God's kingdom. That's where you say, Amen. Amen. So this is about all of us. And listen, we don't talk about rewards much in the body, but it is a biblical doctrine. And they do come with a cost and they do invite opposition, as we'll see this morning. But whatever the cost, it will be worth it in the end. So would you stand and read with me, please? Acts 21. We'll start at least with verses one through six and make our way down through our text as we progress. 
Verse 1, Acts 21. Now, it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was unloaded, would unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went our way, and they all accompanied us, wives and children, till we were out of the city, and we knelt down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Lord, we pray that you would, through our time this morning, get us uh, convicted and convinced uh, that we need to do more for you, because it's true of us all. And Lord, when there are times to escort others to where the ministry is going to take place and to pray for them as they go, Lord, help us to be faithful in that. And for those whom you're calling to get on board, Lord, I pray uh, that we would be more willing and ready to do that as well. So teach us from your word. Give us ears by your spirit to hear what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, our opening words are, it came to pass. And after the tearful goodbye with the Ephesian elders, we're told they departed. And the word departed actually means to be torn away from. So this was a very gripping moment and experience after so many things had been shared by the elders and Paul and their uh, families in Ephesus after these three years. Now, Paul and company set sail, it says, running a straight course for cause in the Aegean Sea. And the next day they traveled by Rhodes and then they docked in Patera. And from there, they continued their southeasterly journey to Syria for some 400 miles in the open sea, uh, passing Cyprus on the left. They eventually arrived at the Syrian province of Phoenicia, specifically the city of Tyre, where the large ship would require seven days to unload and reload its cargo. Now, as Paul and the team landed, we're told they searched out some disciples of Christ. We're told that they found some disciples. And the word found or finding means to find by searching. Now, the interesting thing about this is that within that week time span where cargo was unloaded and reloaded and they reboarded the ship, the bond had grown so strong between the missionary team and their new friends and fellow disciples that they would do what was normally done by close family, friends, and associates in that they escorted the team back to the ship for the final goodbyes. Now, I'm sure you've all had this same experience, and sometimes I think we even pick up on it when we're having an encounter, maybe at the grocery store or gas station, and you walk away and you just think, man, that person was a believer. You could sense it in their spirit, and having traveled extensively internationally, I can tell you sometimes when you're in a place where people speak another language, like New Zealand or Australia, there's... (laughs) There's just that kindredness, and obviously being facetious here, but when we're in a situation where somebody may speak a completely different language, there's still a fellowship that's shared because we are family made one in Christ Jesus. A shared love for Christ is even easily understood and a familial type of love 
is instantly given to us. And this is something that's exclusive to us as the saints of God. Amen? Now, interestingly, at some point during those seven days, verse 4 says, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this is one of those issues where commentators are divided on what this implies. Some say Paul was told here by the Holy Spirit not to go to Jerusalem, and he went up anyway, and it's known as Paul's great mistake. Others say the mistake was actually in the plea of the disciples in Tyre. And I believe the latter of the commentators are actually accurate because of what we read in Acts chapter 20, where Paul said in 22 to 23, And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Now, the word spirit in Acts 20.23 and verse 4 of Acts 21 are the same Greek word. And depending on which manuscript you would be reading from, the two words look like this in the Greek. And I want to call your attention to it sometime today, whenever this pops up on the screen. And... Um, Anyway, the point is, is that the manuscripts, the older Greek manuscripts, are written in what is called uncials, and it's just all capital letters, and there's no change uh, in any particular word. They're just in all caps. And then the newer manuscripts are written in what's called minuscules, and it's all lowercase letters, mainly to save uh, papyrus and writing space and all that. And the two forms of writing in the Greek were not Mixed. They were either all caps or they were all lowercase. And therefore, determining when the Holy Spirit is being spoken of and the spirit that is inside a man is being spoken of is left to the translators or the transmitters, if you will. Now, in the lowercase Greek, the first letter is something you'd recognize as the pi symbol. And it's not capitalized in either of the verses we mentioned this morning. And there's, 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 there's no distinction between what the word spirit can represent. Now, the reason this is important for us this morning, and I can tell you're so excited about this information, <laughs> is that it tells us, one, there's no conflicting reports from the Holy Spirit that are being given here because the word pneuma can refer to the Holy Spirit, but it can also refer to the human spirit. It can also be in reference to mental disposition. And that means what's likely happening here when they warn Paul in the spirit or through the spirit, the spirit that is being spoken of is their emotions, is their mental disposition, is how they feel about Paul. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that this was a conflicting report from the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit hadn't changed his mind. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit is the same yesterday, today, and forever as uh, the third member of the triune Godhead? He doesn't say, go, and then when you're halfway there, he says, "Mm, never mind. That's not what happened with Paul, and this is not contradictory at all. It's people who love Paul trying to keep Paul from the suffering that awaited him. Now, our first component of transitioning from spectator to participant as the Lord leads comes from considering all that we've read thus far, not just in our chapter, but previous ones as well, and all the time and travel and associated cost 
with it that bounce Paul from island to island. That'll continue in our next section. And finally, by foot, all the way to Jerusalem. And there were well-meaning people along the way who loved Paul, who did not want to see him come to harm, who sensed the danger that lie in front of the apostle, of which they hoped to spare him by their counsel. Now, here's the point for you and I in transitioning from spectator to participant. Listen, are you ready this morning? To go from spectator to participant is both a battle and a blessing. To go from spectator to participant is both a battle and a blessing. Just like much of life, just like serving God in any capacity, there's going to be battles along the way. Are you here this morning? But there are blessings in the end as well. And as we mentioned a moment ago, there's a cost and commitment to boarding the ship, so to speak. Time, effort, resources, and even saying goodbye to well-meaning friends and loved ones who may say things to keep you from hard things and trials who are a blessing to us, who are just looking out for you and I. Now, Colossians 3, 23 and 24 reminds us, whatever you do, do it how? Heartedly, wholeheartedly, as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive what? The reward, there it is again, of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, I like to see and read, and there's even some uh, videos and audios of mighty works of God done in the past, revivals that have swept. Uh, There's something on YouTube, if you ever wanted to look it up and had... Uh, 30 minutes to be totally blessed uh, out of your mind. There's something called the revival hymn that you could watch and hear of how God moved in a place called the Barvis Revival as he was moving uh, through the uh, uh, British Isles, so to speak. And there was uh, one recounting of a story where there was a man, as this man, uh, this pastor Duncan Campbell describes the scene, he called the constable or the chief of police a well-saved man. And this man showed up at the police station one morning, and there were 700 people standing there waiting for him to tell them about Christ. God was moving. No one could stop it. I love hearing about that. Don't you? I'd rather participate in that, wouldn't you? And listen, making the transition is going to be a battle. I want you to think about this. Every excuse under the sun is going to come into our minds and Satan is going to throw every hurdle that he can to keep us from getting into the game instead of just watching it. And listen, well-meaning people and loved ones who want what's best for you say things like Terry and I have said to us in the past. We had someone say to us one time, You guys sure spend a lot of time at church. It was definitely negative, but it was like, yeah, yes, we do. One time someone who knew that I believed God had called me to the ministry said this to me. You need to just give up on that dream and move on. Well, I'm personally glad I didn't. I'm glad to be a participant in what God is doing. Amen. And one was trying to guard me from further disappointment and the other were questioning the level of our commitment. And both of these parties loved us as family. Now listen, in Hebrews 12, 28, we're told, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, which does this, that allows us to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. And it goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. 
Now, listen, I mentioned a few weeks ago, since I believe with all of my heart that the evidence leads us to the mindset that we ought to have, that any moment the trumpet's going to sound, twinkling of an eye, we're out of here and putting on immortal incorruptibility. That's going to happen at any time. The evidence seems to tell us that, even though we don't know the day or the hour. But we also added to that 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 means we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, or the Bema seat, and be judged according to the things we have done with what God has given us, called us, and enabled us to do. And I feel a sense of urgency because of the nearness of the rapture of the church that I believe we are uh, should live expectantly, but we also need to pull out all the stops and do all we can to advance the kingdom that we can limit the number of people who enter into the great tribulation for it's a time like the world has never seen where many, many are going to die both with Christ and apart from him. So there's little time left to fulfill our callings, to do the works prepared beforehand for us to walk in. We are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And there's a whole lot of shaking going on in the earthly kingdom today. But the one we're going to can't be shaken. But until then, the enemy and sometimes friends will seek to hinder our transition from spectator to participator. Is God not worth all that we are, have, and can do? Shouldn't he be our top priority? And in light of who he is and all he has done for us, and we'll talk more about that later. But let me remind you of something we covered a couple of weeks ago. In James 4, 13 to 17, James writes, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there, buy and sell, make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your ignorance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it's a poor decision. To him it's a what? A sin. Do you believe that today? Now listen, I'm not saying if you're not serving, you're not saved. But what I am saying is if you are saved, you ought to be serving. And that's true for all of us. Because it's going to be a battle. But there'll be untold blessings in the end. That's where you say. Now let's look at 7 through 11. Continues with Paul saying, When we'd finished our Luke writing, when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemy, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we, Luke including himself now, who were Paul's companions, departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with them. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus the Holy Spirit... Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, the sea travel portion of Saul's third missionary journey now comes to an end, having stopped in Ptolemy for a day, greeted the believers. They next arrived at a place called Caesarea Maritima or Caesarea by the sea. It was the coastal port for Jerusalem. It was built by Herod the Great. It was a seaside resort. And from here, 
the 65-mile walk, which would take two days, to Jerusalem would begin, but not before a time of fellowship with a man who was among the seven named in Acts chapter 6, who were assigned to the task of seeing to the needs of the Hellenist or Greek-speaking uh, Jewish widows. Now, we're told in Acts 6, 2 to 7, that the 12 uh, summoned, the 12 apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. Listen to the result. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. Where? In Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now, when the number of participants increased, the word of God spread. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly where the church began in the city of Jerusalem. And even many of the Jewish priests came to know the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And the mention of Philip's four unmarried daughters who prophesied is interesting, and it's just kind of a strange insertion. It doesn't say they had anything to say to Paul. It doesn't imply that they had anything to say to Paul concerning his missionary journey. But what it does tell us is because their dad was a man of faith full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. His four daughters saw what was modeled by their dad and served the Lord too and had the gift of speaking by divine inspiration, which is the New Testament gift of prophecy. Now, this is the same Philip who took the gospel to the Samaritans. It is the same Philip who had the encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch who was reading Isaiah and did not understand, invited Philip up into his chariot. Philip rightly divided the word of God to him. And this man who is described as a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians and had charge of all uh, of her treasury that he had come to Jerusalem to worship according to Acts eight twenty seven, And then this happens on 836 through 40, uh, 836 through 40 of Acts. As they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down in the water and he, Philip, baptized him, the eunuch. Now, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him. Don't you love God's transportation methods? They caught Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more. He went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and having passed through, he preached in all the cities until he came to where? Caesarea, and that's where we find him today, 25 years later in our text. Philip is still a participant. And now there's another generation of participants that have been raised up in his house after him because Philip was a man of action and his daughters were following in their father's footsteps. 
Now, during the visit, this prophet from Judea named Agabus arrives, and in a very Old Testament style, he illustrates what awaits Paul through the binding of his own hands and feet with Paul's belt and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you when you get to Jerusalem. Now, here's what we need to understand. The Holy Spirit, through Agabus, wasn't prohibiting Paul. He was preparing Paul for what Paul already knew was coming. And the Lord has done the same for you and I through his word as his body, as his church. Now, here's what we need to note in a transition from spectator to participant. Listen this morning. We've said this before in other ways. We'll probably say it again in the future because it's true yesterday, today, and forever till the Lord takes us home. Amen. Listen, anything done for God's glory is going to experience opposition. Anything done for God's glory is going to experience opposition. If we do things for our own glory, the devil won't oppose that because that's what he's all about, glorifying self. But when we seek to glorify God, when we seek to reach others, the enemy is going to oppose it. And the opposition can come in unexpected ways, even though opposition itself is not to be unexpected. Now, thinking back on Paul, we're told in Acts 9, 10 to 16 that there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said, and to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, who's there? No, he said, what? Here I am. Uh, Shades of Isaiah. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he may receive his sight. What the Lord is telling Ananias is, I've already gone before you. Now you just come in behind me. Then Ananias said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must, what? Suffer for my sake. Guys, you need to turn the air down a little bit. It's stuffy in here. Now, listen this morning. What the Lord showed Paul didn't stop Paul. And what we know, the opposition that comes from seeking to serve and glorify the Lord shouldn't stop us either. Anything over here? Shouldn't stop us either. Amen. Thank you. Now, I want you to think about what's going on in our own country today. One of the candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination is running on a platform with a promise of revoking the tax-exempt status of any church that will not conduct gay weddings. Now, first of all, let me say this. That's a direct violation of the First Amendment. Congress is forbidden, prohibited to pass any law that uh, limits the exercise of the freedom of religion, the press, and the right to redress the government. Now, it refutes the church's right to operate according to the word of God, which, again, is prohibited by our Constitution. Now, here's the reality. Some churches will bow to that. Some churches will not. We will not. Amen. Amen. Now, I say that for this reason. That doesn't mean we're choosing suffering. It just means when we become a participant in bringing God's glory, we just have to recognize it's going to be a reality. 
And it may be on the political level, maybe from the government, maybe from sources more closer to home. But the fact is, opposition to serving God is always going to be a Christian reality. And therefore, the devil is going to throw at us anything he can to keep us in the stands rather than getting us in the pool to go back to our initial illustration. Now, in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, Peter writes this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If need be, you've been grieved by various trials. That's always our default reaction. We are joyous when in a trial, right? Yeah. Now, here's the end result of that, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, Though now you do not see him, yet yet believing, you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Listen, receiving the end of your faith, which is what? The salvation of our souls. We are experiencing currently the salvation of our souls. We're going to experience the redemption of our bodies. And then we are going to see the fruit of that forever as we are forever with the Lord. Now, becoming a participant is not easy. It's not convenient. It's going to be opposed in unexpected ways and by unexpected people. But in the end, when we receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls, we will have joy inexpressible, full of glory, when we see the one whom we have served with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even in the face of constant and growing opposition. Somebody say something this morning. Now, let's finish off our section. I know I said 12 to 16. We're going to finish at 14 and reserve 15 and 16 for next week. Now, now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with them not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So... When he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I'm glad that Luke incorporated himself in this portion of the narrative as one of Paul's ministry companions. When they're in Caesarea, the ministry team joins forces with the citizens and saints, if you will, of Caesarea, pleading with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul says, you're breaking my heart. Why are you doing this to me? And he says, in essence, I know what's coming and I'm ready for it. Even if I have to die, I'm not only ready to be bound, but to die if necessary for the name of the one who apprehended me on the road to Damascus. Now, our question is, what caused Paul to have such a level of commitment, a depth of commitment to his calling? How did he become so immovable when pleaded with by those who loved him and whom he loved and served with? Now, listen, I'm glad you asked those questions because now we can answer them. Paul experienced what the woman at the well experienced, or the woman, rather, who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and dried them with her hair experienced, even though he also shared in what the woman at the well experienced and hearing of the one who had living water. What Paul had experienced is the power of forgiveness. Now, this woman, who was a former harlot, entered the house of a Pharisee named Simon. 
And she began to wash Jesus' feet with her tears and dry his feet with her hair. And she anointed Jesus' feet with a fragrant oil and then began to incessantly kiss his feet. And Simon, we're told, said to himself, in other words, he thought in his mind these unspoken words concerning Jesus. He said to himself, if this man was really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. Now get this. In Luke seven forty to 47, we're told, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, Rabbi, say it, or teacher, say it. Then Jesus went on to say, There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which one of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. She gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I say to her, her say to you, her sins, which are what? Many are forgiven, for she loved much. But whom little is forgiven, the same loves how? Little. Note that Jesus answered Simon's thoughts. Simon never said this out loud. He said it to himself, and Jesus answered him with an illustration of what this woman was doing when he said to Simon, you haven't even shown common cultural courtesy to me. Most houses of a man of priority like Simon would have the lowest of slaves who had the task of washing travelers' feet feet when they came to visit. Is it feet is plural for foot, right? <laughs> now, he says, You gave me no anointing oil for my head, which again was another custom of the day when visiting someone's home, but because of the depth of this woman's understanding of the level of forgiveness she had received, she loved much and she showed it much. Now, Paul would also say in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 11, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the what? Scriptures. And that he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the what? Scriptures. And he was seen by Cephas or Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. And in other words, eyewitnesses are still alive. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James and by all the apostles. Then last of all, Paul says, he was seen by me as one born out of due time or apart from the other group. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. Paul said what he said because he understood the depth of his own forgiveness. He persecuted the church and thus he persecuted the head of the church, which is Jesus Christ. You remember the Damascus Road encounter when he was asked the question, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul replied, because of the nature of the incident, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul 
persecuted Jesus, Jesus forgave Paul. And this is why he was a man of such deep convictions. Listen, there's a lesson for us here in Paul's response. And indeed, his desire to go to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him. And it's just a final reminder about being a participant in what God is calling us to do. Listen this morning. Serving the Lord is an expression of love and thanks, not obligation and duty. Serving the Lord is an expression of love and thanks, not obligation and duty. Now, we're told in Ephesians 10, as those saved by grace through faith, there's a pairing of divine uh, character with human responsibility. Grace is God's method, and we need to respond to God offering his son's blood to cover our sins. And all of those who are saved by grace through faith are indeed called to works, and God has prepared them for us. But we shouldn't view these works as a works righteousness, as many declare today. Nor should we pursue serving God as dutiful obligations. It's a privilege to serve God. Now, when we understand that our sins earned us hell and Christ's blood bought us heaven, we'll say what Paul has said. I can't be a spectator. I have to be a participant in serving him and by that bring him glory. Jesus said in the opening phrases after the Beatitudes of Matthew 5, 16 of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Your good works resulting in what? Glorifying your Father in heaven. Now, listen this morning. We're in a weird season here at CCT. Hello? Kind of strange. We got blindsided not too long ago. So had something happen causing us to need to move uh, here by the end of June of next year. But listen, let me tell you something this morning. Because we're a Bible teaching church, we've been brought into the crosshairs of the enemy. And we're in a battle. But like Paul, we don't stop reaching out. We don't stop trying to reach the world. We don't bow to negative voices, even when they come from well-meaning and beloved saints. We are the people of God. And we have a message that can save the human soul. We need to edify the saints and equip them for the work of ministry. And we need to go to the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We need to be preaching at home. We need to be preaching around the world. And the more we understand the depth of our own forgiveness, the more we're going to express our love for God through serving Him. Now, in Ephesians four eleven to 16... The Lord gave, Lord himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And here's the purpose of that giving to the church, these uh, called people, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That... We should no longer, listen, when we're equipped for ministry, we're no longer like children, tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth, how? In love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working, the Holy Spirit being implied there, by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Listen, opposition shouldn't stop us from ministry. 
We're God's people. We're called and chosen before the foundations of the world. And God will supply all our need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to do what he has called us to do. But listen, logic says if we do nothing, we'll need nothing. So we need to keep going. Now's not the time to pull back. Now's the time to forge ahead. Now's the time to lead the charge and capture souls for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because Jesus is coming soon. And he said, therefore, you also be ready. Are you ready this morning? Let's go get him. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you again for your matchless word. Thank you for this scene. And thank you, Lord, for those who love us enough and care enough about us to call things into question, Lord, out of sincere and loving and caring hearts, and even that of concern. But we thank you, Lord, that we also recognize through our text that the voice of the Holy Spirit supersedes the voice of any human being. So, Lord, help us, God, to get in the pool, so to speak, as we illustrated today. Help us not simply to be an escort, but a participant. And, Lord, when you call us to be that one who waves goodbye to others or sends them on their way, Lord, that we would be prayer warriors and thus sharing in the reward of what they will experience directly. So, Lord, we thank you that you've got something for all of us to do. And help us, Lord, not to be satisfied with the grandstands, but rather to get on the boat, as we saw in our text, and go to places where trials and plots against us are going to be sure, but victory has already been won through Christ. So we thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, help us now to go and live this out every day of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all the Sunday morning warriors said, Amen. Amen.